is happening now. We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. When you think of the division between Ukraine and Russia, it's hard not to be embarrassed by what separates Canadians. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. There you go. One of the uh, things we heard over the course of the weekend was uh, LCBO stopping the uh, uh, the sale of Russian vodka. But don't you worry about a thing, uh, because there are others that are out there and uh, and locally operated. Catherine Valinga is with us, Canadian-Ukrainian business owner and founder of Oakville-based Zirkova Vodka, which has operations in Canada and distilla- uh, distillation and production in Ukraine and is with us now. Catherine, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Scott, thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Uh, what are your thoughts when you see what's happening and, and, and what's going on? Scott, I have to tell you, I've been listening to your callers and I can absolutely, you know, agree with them. I mean, Ukraine is a, I'm Ukrainian Canadian, I'm first generation. My parents, my grandparents were Holdemar survivors and survivors of the Second World War. And my parents and grandparents were displaced people after the war that came to Canada. So we've been really raised to, you know, love and, and honor Ukraine, even though, you know, we, we couldn't even visit there until 30 years ago. So, you know, it's really been a part of my heart. I, I've lived there. I've worked there. I've been, you know, trading with Ukraine for, for over 20 years. I um, started a business there 25 years ago. So it's it's devastating it's absolutely devastating but then you go through you know heartbreak sadness tears shock and then you get to action and i think that's really what we're seeing is all of these courageous acts all around the world and we've all been inspired by ukraine and ukrainians and what they're doing and so yeah we decided on friday that we were going to donate 100% of our profits to uh, the Ukraine Humanitarian Appeal. And that's how we were going to take some action in this craziness. The spirit of the Ukrainian people has really captured the world, especially their president. Would you not agree? Oh, my gosh. You know, I've always said that Ukrainians have this gift of just connecting and uniting and bringing people together and acknowledgement and it's it's just yeah we're 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 inspired like this is this is what they're all about i mean what you're seeing is who ukrainians are um you, you know how did you decide to make the decision to make this donation for from zirkova vodka well, we've been, I mean, the whole nature of our brand is about freedom and being yourself and bringing people together in connection. And so, um, in fact, when while living in Ukraine, we discovered that the motherland, the, the origins of vodka itself, were in modern day Ukraine. And mm. that's where we distill. 
like in that region. Um, I mean, and so. Uh, how, how is this going to affect was, business for you? Because you do have production there. It's absolutely going to affect business for us, but we're not really thinking of that. Like no. right now, yeah. you know, of course I'm worried, but I'm worried more about Ukraine. I mean, all of Ukrainian business has stopped everywhere. Of course, people are just trying to survive like that gentleman that just spoke. I mean, people are on the run fighting, you know, hold up in their apartments, surviving. I mean, so it's not the time to think of that, but in, but, you know, I do have, I, I am asking our industry to come to this table with me. I mean, I've, I've, I don't think it's right that the industry profits from the boycotting of Russian vodkas. I think it's Ukraine that needs our help. And that's where, you know, everybody was contacting me saying, have you heard, have you heard? They're pulling Russian vodka off the shelves. And my thoughts were, okay, well, but how does that help Ukraine? Yeah. So, so this is the time to help Ukraine. Catherine Valinga with us, co-founder and CEO of Zerkova uh, Vodka. You can find out more about what they're doing at Zerkova.com. That's Zerkova.com. Catherine, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck to all your family and friends there. Scott, thank you for bringing awareness to all of this. I so appreciate you and all of your listeners. All right, tomorrow, mandatory vaccine certificates, capacity limits become a thing of the past in Ontario uh, as we are uh, pretty much to the two-year mark of this. I think it was uh, the kids on March break. Uh, they said, go home and stay there for a while. Uh, and some of us are still here. Uh, that being said, the Emergency Operations Center in Hamilton is still up and running. Uh, running. Jason Thorne is with us, General Manager of Planning and Economic Development and Director of the City of Hamilton's Emergency Operations Center. Jason, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Scott, yes, thanks very much. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. You know, I remember when we would talk to the Emergency Opera- Operations Center at least like once a week during all of this. How have things changed for uh, the center and, and your management of this uh, after two years? Well, I was listening to your intro there, and, and, and I think it was about March 12th, I think, was, was the first mm. date that we met as an Emergency Operations Center two years ago. So, yes, it has been quite some time. Um, and yeah, for those first few months, it was uh, pretty much a daily meeting that we were having. Um, and I'd say what, what's different now is there, there's still lots to do. Things are maybe not changing quite so quickly each and every day where it seems like something is different. Uh, that's where we were uh, uh, not too many months ago. So I guess in that sense, maybe the pace of change is a little less than it was. Um, but yeah, we're, uh, we're coming up close to a two-year anniversary for this partic- particular uh, sort of emergency declaration. And how is Hamilton faring at this point of this? So I think what the uh, you know what the, what the public health professionals will will tell you is that we are seeing some uh, encouraging signs, um, and I think that's good. And I think that's what's on the basis of the uh, the provincial announcement that takes uh, effect tomorrow. Um, I, I can tell you that from a uh, you know from a staffing standpoint, from the services that we deliver as a city, it's been it's been tough times. It's been really difficult to uh, uh, um, for staff to kind of keep things going, keep all the services going that we offer as a city. 
Um, but I think for, for the, I think we've done pretty well in terms of re- delivering all those services remotely with some staff, a number of staff still working from home. Um, but I know there's a lot of staff who are who are anxious to get back to the workplace. And then I know today's announcement or what's taking taking um, uh, coming in tomorrow with the uh, capacity restrictions that were lifted a couple of weeks ago. There's a lot of businesses in the city that are uh, really looking forward to uh, uh, getting some of their business activity levels back to normal. Now, from uh, and obviously, I know you're you're uh, director of the uh, of the emergency operations center, but not necessarily a doctor uh, per se. But how do you feel about things being relaxed? Whether it is the vaccine passport system or or, or uh, the capacity limits, do you feel comfortable where we are, Jason? Yeah, I mean, I think as as, as an EOC, we, we we take our direction from 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 the public health professionals uh, yeah. from the province uh, and the medical officer of health there, and. Um, uh, and sort of our role then as an EOC is to respond to that and say, okay, what does that mean in terms of the uh, um, the city services that we offer, some of the, the um, regulations that are in place in the community? Uh, so for us as a as a as a city, um, what the big change that will take place tomorrow is uh, we're following the province's lead in terms of lifting the vaccination requirements on those city facilities that still have them. Uh, so for example, our rec centers, our arenas. Uh, will no longer, as of tomorrow, require the vaccine passport to access those sorts of services. And uh, for everybody else, and obviously this isn't your uh, area, but for everybody else, uh, it's up to them whether they want to follow through with this or not. Is that is that accurate, Jason? That's right. So it's you know the mandatory vaccine requirement lifts as of tomorrow, but certainly that is still um, uh, something that's optional. If 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 business owners or mm-hmm. people who run um, event centers, those sorts of things, do want to still require that, um, they they can continue to do so. So it's the mandatory requirement that is lifted as of tomorrow. Um, that is just for the vaccine requirement. We always do make sure we're reminding the public, reminding uh, local businesses and establishments that the masking requirements are still in place. Right. Um, so that is both for patrons as well as for staff uh, that that has not changed. Uh, so, yeah, we should reiterate that the masking uh, is still in place at this point. Uh, what about uh, the city of Hamilton and how they're making out with vaccination and getting them completed and boosters and such? So we have uh, we we do continue to roll roll that out. Uh, we've we've pulled back some of the uh, the clinics that we had in the community as we get more and more of our uh, of our residents uh, with first, second, and even third doses. Um, so we have uh, scaled back some of the sort of the I'll call sort of the mass clinics, the general public clinics, and and the focus now is really much more targeted on some of the the harder to reach populations. Um, so there's a lot of working with some of our partners in our community to really be very strategic and focused on some of those populations that still have um, uh, lower than average vaccination rates. Uh, but by and large, we're pretty pleased with how the rollout has gone. Really pleased with the way some of our community partners have come together to promote the clinics, to run their own clinics. Um, uh, it, it's been a, a, a pretty considerable effort, and, and I think uh, we're pretty pleased with the, uh, with the impact that it's had. So with these uh, changes coming tomorrow and uh, capacity limits, vaccine, passport, and such uh, now becoming optional, what advice do you have for Hamiltonians or anybody from the uh, Emergency Operations Centre? So we do ask you know, uh, people to still be uh, diligent and, and, and to keep the number of the exposures they have in the community uh, 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 low if they can. Um, still practice the, uh, the, the good public health practices we've had in place for some time, asking, of course, being uh, part of that. Uh, and of course, if you're experiencing symptoms, that's really one of the keys. If you're experiencing the symptoms, then, then, then please do stay home um, and, and don't uh, risk spreading that more broadly in the community. 
Jason Thorne with us, General Manager, Planning and Economic Development, Director of the City of Hamilton's Emergency Operations Center. Jason, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Speaking of Russia, their interest rates have doubled. The ruble is on the verge of collapse. What does that mean for the rest of us and the country itself? Let's bring in Brett Chang of The Peak and co-host of The Peak Daily podcast covering everything in the world of business and is with us now. Brett, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having me on again. So, uh, ruble, uh, down 30%, 20% inflation rates, uh, that can't be playing well in Russia. No, it's not playing well at all. And you have to kind of put it in perspective here. Imagine you woke up one day and you realized that the Canadian dollars that you held, they fell in value by 30%. Your mortgage rate was about to double to the higher interest rates and ATM lineups were over two hours long as people try to get their money out of the banks. So what does this mean? Uh, you know, obviously, many asked how how uh, devastating these sanctions would be. Obviously, Russia's already starting to feel the hit. They're definitely starting to feel the hit. And I think for the first time now in this conflict, you're actually seeing it start to hit everyday Russians as they kind of go on with their lives. And that's when I think the real impact is beginning to be uh, felt. And this all, by the way, stems from the original sanctions, which was kicking Russia off of the kicking Russian banks off the SWIFT system and Mm. sanctioning their access to their central bank reserves. So talk about the SWIFT system, because many average people probably don't know much about this. Why is this so significant? Yeah, so the SWIFT system, this is the messaging protocol that over 11,000 banks around the world used to communicate with each other. So if you want to send funds from TD to Deutsche Bank, they're going to use the SWIFT system to make that wire payment. Now, Russian banks no longer have access to that system. So if you want to pay a Russian, if you want to pay somebody who has a Russian bank account, you're no longer able to. They can't accept or receive payments from anywhere, anywhere else in the world. So they're truly isolated from the financial system. Many have wondered why Russia, obviously the superior power here, could go in and take this, could have taken Ukraine a while ago, a couple of days ago, but have held off. Is it because of this tension, do you think, that this obviously it didn't turn out to be a, a, as easy as Putin thought it may be? Well, and, now he's feeling the ram- and now he's feeling the ramifications. Yeah, look, it's impossible to know what was going on in Putin's head. You have to imagine that the Russian government could have seen this coming. It's not like they had the strongest economy going into this conflict. The ruble was already a shaky currency to begin with. I don't think he expected this intense of sanctions as quickly as they came to be. And so you you have to give credit to NATO, the G7, the EU for creating an alliance around this and quickly mobilizing to put in the harshest possible sanctions. So what does uh, what does this mean, Brett, for the rest of the world, for the rest of the uh, the Western world, seeing uh, obviously their economy uh, go in the direction it, it, it is going in? What does this mean for the rest of us? Can can the rest of us experience the same thing sometime? Well, yeah, look, you know, there is going to be global ramifications to these sanctions, and we haven't seen them yet, but they will likely happen very shortly. Now, there's a couple of big risks, one being that a number of big European countries, including Germany, are fairly dependent on Russian natural gas and oil. And so if Russia decides to cut off the taps on the supply of, of those resources, then Germans will have trouble heating their homes. So that's one very obvious uh, obvious impact that's going to have on the world. You know, and by the way, as you 
noted, we also buy Russian gas. And so yeah. you know, we also may get cut off from that as well. So that's probably the biggest risk. But generally speaking, when you have Russia, which is a fairly large economy, when that begins to collapse, there is going to be a, a ripple effect. Brett Chang with us of The Peak, co-host of The Peak Daily Podcast, covering everything in the world of business. Brett, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. Let's move on and uh, talk about where we are tomorrow. Mandatory vaccine certificates, capacity limits uh, go by the wayside, hopefully forever in Ontario. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Timothy Sly is with us, epidemiologist and professor in School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson, and with us now. Uh, Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. Yes, I am. How are you feeling with the vaccine passports uh, and in the capacity limits coming to an end tomorrow? Are we ready for this? Uh, is it time? Uh, your thoughts, Tim? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's moving in that direction, Scott. I don't think we can uh, we can deny that we're we're getting to that point now. Fingers crossed that we don't get another variant. Right, everything would change if that happens. But at the moment, I mean, we've got the the, the BA two coming along, but fortunately, it seems to be that it spreads more rapidly than the BA one uh, Omicron, the one we're dealing with now. So mm-hmm. it's it's going to take over. It's taking over. In fact, in some countries, it's taken over already the majority. But it doesn't seem to be for the vaccinated people. Doesn't seem to be uh, a major source of worry or concern. Unvaccinated people, I wouldn't want to be one of those at the moment. But we're heading in the right direction it, 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 it's inevitable uh, i was fortunate enough to go to my mother's long-term care facility this weekend first time since thanksgiving uh for me uh are you concerned or expecting any sort of uptick as we see these uh th- these protocols drop uh, do, do you anticipate you know a slight bump or anything yeah, that's part of the inevitability of it. We're going to see a slight increase, but let, well, we're assuming it's going to be a like a speed bump increase rather than another cliff face that we run into. Uh, clearly, as as uh, universities and colleges go back to almost full time teaching now, the the schools have gone back a few several weeks ago. Uh, as people drop uh, capacity limits and uh, and other precautions, we begin to see numbers going up again. We'll, remember, remember this will not be a return to as it was in early yeah. 2000, 2019. It won't be that at all. But uh, this thing has not gone away. It'll be with us for the foreseeable future. So we can expect little little bushfires here and there we've got to put out, little flare-ups, individual cases, little groups, mainly among the unvaccinated, uh, because this is the virus uh, hunting and zapping the unvaccinated essentially from now on. But that's the scenery that we've got. Now, should another variant come along, this, uh, the whole thing may change. And let's, uh, let's hope that doesn't happen. What is the rest of the world doing now, Tim? Because, again, we remember we were uh, about four to six months behind the other, some other countries when it came to vaccination and such. And, and we remember we could watch in other parts of the world what was happening. And that would be some sort of indication of what, what might be happening here. How is the rest of the world uh, coping with this? Uh, are they in the same position that, that we are? Is there anything yeah. we can learn from them now? They are, Scott. I mean, the UK just today released uh, even more relaxation of everything. I think they're all almost down to zero now of the precautions. Denmark, Sweden, uh, and uh, also uh, there are several weeks ahead of us, and they're, they're doing pretty well, mainly because they've got their third, their, their third shot, their booster shot up to uh, uh, levels that we haven't reached yet here. 
So I'd like to see Canada powering the 75, 80, 82 percent with the booster shot, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, so, you know, as I said, you, as you said correctly, we're a couple of weeks behind, but we're more moving in that same direction. Now, in some other parts of the world, we're, we're going the other direction, where places that we haven't really seen much vaccine being shipped out to them yet. And that's, that's a concern. It still is a concern. Remember, all of those vac all of those variants that came to visit us, Alpha, Beta, Delta, Omicron, all came from parts of the world where this thing is replicating like uh, like like hotcakes or whatever you want to, whichever pun you want to use, uh, and and that's the problem. That's where we're going to be looking for looking for the next uh, the next variant to come from. What about Hong Kong? Uh, we heard uh, I think it was a week or two ago that they were having another outbreak. Exactly, and I think the countries that that took up the policy of zero COVID, you remember a lot of countries yeah. were under that flag. China, of course, was the biggest one. I mean, China only had a, a, a couple of hundred thousand cases oh, total in a country that was about 1.3 billion. And they but were isolating. They were isolating as opposed to max vaccination exactly. or the combination. And yeah, yeah. Like that's what that's what zero COVID meant. It meant yeah. build up a big wall. Don't let anybody spread anything. Don't let whatever you do, let anybody come into the country, and we're going to keep it zero COVID. Well, the problem is, but ultimately, if this thing is not going away, and we, we've learned, we will be learning to live with it, <clears throat> sooner or later, somebody's got to open up the, the, uh, the, the castle doors there, yeah. and you're going to get trade going in, and people going in, and travelers, tourists, and they're going to bring it in. So th in those countries, they're going to start all over again. So they, they, their best policy at the moment is to get the population vaccinated as rapidly and as effectively as you can. Uh, what is the they, what is the vaccination rate of Hong Kong? Do we know? I mean, I don't think it's as high as it is in Canada, is no, it? Which no, is it's not it's not as high. Nor is it with in Taiwan either, because they were very they yeah. were successful in keeping it, the, the wolf from the door. But once you open the door, the wolf comes in. So they're they're actually trying to get uh, the whole population vaccinated now, and I hope they can do it. Otherwise, it's going to be a disaster in those places, too. Singapore was another one that was good at keeping it away. <clears throat> but ultimately, they're going to have to get vaccinated. If this had gone like, like SARS-1 in 2003, uh, it appeared in about uh, 15 places around the world. Toronto was one of them. And we chased it away, and it's never come back since. But this thing isn't. It's, it will be in the population, much like influenza is part of our seasonal uh, diseases. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist at School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Today, Canada's travel uh, Canada's travel restrictions ease. Obviously, tomorrow, the uh, vaccine passports uh, will also fall by the wayside. Uh, they can still be used uh, optionally, but they're, they are no longer mandatory. And, you know, if you listen very closely, you can actually hear people packing their bags and running to the airport. Uh, let's bring in Richard Vanderlube, uh, president of TripCentral.ca, and is with us now. Richard, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Good afternoon. Have things changed dramatically for your business, Richard, say, in the last month? Oh, yeah. It's like shifting gears from second gear to fourth and fifth <laughs> and skipping the ones in between. So, um, now we saw a rise in, in confidence as we approached January 31st when, you know, restaurants kind of eased some restrictions and whatever. And then, of course, once the government, you know, uh, relaxed 
a PCR test and switched it to a rapid test and lifted the advisory, it was like a light switch again. So we're overwhelmed right now with um, lots of new requests for booking, um, still people trying to rebook things that were canceled. So it, it's been, uh. it's been a, a yo-yo <laughs> over the course well, of at le- years. At least, Richard, it's nice to be talking to you, and as opposed to the opposite, it's positive news. But let's have a hypothetical situation here, Richard. Say I called you up and I said, I want a book. I don't care where I'm going. I just want to go somewhere hot, and I want to leave this weekend. What could I find? Well, it's doable, and I think what we've done on the website is we've identified all of the destinations where you don't need advanced testing. So there are, there are some. And um, a lot of the Eastern Caribbean uh, destinations are also, uh, the English Caribbean destinations are dropping the PCR test in favor of an antigen. So now either you don't need a test or it's a, a cheap rapid test at your local drugstore. Um, and that's, that's a big difference. And then coming home to Canada now, it's also an antigen test. Most of the hotels, um, are offering this on site. It's a lot less cost than a PCR test. And so it, it really has dramatically changed, um, you know, the, the complexity of things. Jamaica just this what? week dropped their online form that you have to fill out. And so we're, we're finding changes to destinations and updating the site all the time. So what about attitudes, Richard? Uh, is there hesitancy? Because we remember when things would open up in the past and there was chances, not so much with travel, but certainly with other things that were locked down, that, you know, everybody thought, oh, it's going to be the Roaring Twenties, and people were kind of hesitant, although now I do believe it will be like the Roaring Twenties. But are, are people a little less hesitant to get on the plane now? Are they, all right, let's go, pack the bags? Yeah, I think the, you know, we always found that there was sort of this 20% on either end of the spectrum that, would travel no matter what if it wasn't if it weren't for certain restrictions and then there's 20 percent that don't want to travel until this is really finished so there is some hesitancy still there that you know things could go sideways again but you know going from where we were to where we are it's it's a dramatic change in in attitude and people wanting to get away and you know as a result prices are rising so so seats are filling up you know the airlines had canceled Uh, a number of departures because they weren't selling. And now there's sort of a scramble to see, you know, what can we get on for additional capacity? Because, you know, just a few weeks ago, it was quiet. Now all of a sudden everybody comes out of the woodwork (laughs) yeah, and, and they, they would have to go and back and see if they can reestablish some of the capacity that was canceled. But, you know, the hotels, I was just down in Costa Rica. The hotels were, were at good occupancies. I mean, Canada was, one of the last places with some of the most restrictive travel uh, restrictions. So we are a bit behind the rest of the world. Uh, you talked about uh, prices going up, which was my next question. Uh, will it take a while for the industry to catch up to this demand, as you said, because so many have been parked for so long? Oh, for sure. Like, we're we're finding it overwhelming. We're losing calls every day. It's a, it's a sad situation, right? We don't like that, and the service level isn't what it should be. Um, so we're, you know, but luckily we have the website and we've invested a lot of time to put a lot of self-service information there. But, you know, again, for the airlines, it's, there's this demand, but it's, it, they pretty much have to rejig their entire schedule to add capacity because they got to pull aircraft from different places and it's a complicated thing. 
So we think there's going to be more capacity added on and probably in latter March, April, maybe even into May if there's still demand at that time. Does what happens uh, between the Russian and Ukraine conflict, does that affect it in any way as long as you're not going near that area? Yeah, it's a, it's def- there's an effect because we measured, we measure calls coming in for new bookings and existing. And, and when that was heating up, the, the calls on existing came in. We did get calls saying, how does this, how might this affect me? Um, you know, the reality is a, a lot of the deaths, like we're not booking a ton of Europe right now anyway. It seems like the pandemic really slowed that down. There's a lot of, normally there's a lot of Europe booking going on in, in January and February. But I think people are more a little more wait and see with that one, and now with with that situation, I think it's even more so. But uh, you know that that situation there. I mean, if it's if it's a hot war or, or there's there's real uh, concerns there, the, the airlines aren't going to fly there, right? So I think it's the same sort of thing we've experienced that if it's risky and the the airlines aren't flying there, this is not a voluntary cancellation is involuntary and so if they cancel you know you don't lose your money right so i think i think that's kicking in with people now but it just seems like people are waiting a bit longer with europe richard vanderlip with us president at tripcentral.ca talking about uh how the uh loosening of protocols has uh has torqued up the travel industry and there's lots of demand if uh you want to head somewhere richard thanks for the time be well Thank you. How many Canadians out there are aware we buy gas from Russia? Put your hands up. Well, they're shutting down the Western oil patch. Uh, We're buying our dirty oil from Saudi Arabia and Russia. And the Prime Minister comes out today and announces all the things he's doing to uh, show Russia that he means business. And in French, he says, by the way, we're we're not buying any more natural gas from, or any more gas from them, rather. You know, any more crude oil. How many Canadians were even aware that we did? And, you know, why are we not building pipelines and what have you so we can supply what Europe clearly needs and is getting from a dictator? But that's lost in the French translation somewhere when the prime minister tells us all what he's going to do. Uh, let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. He is with us now. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, Scott, sometimes I shake my head just like you do. And this was exactly one where it's just shaking my head. How many Canadians realize that we buy gas from Russia while we're shutting down the West? So I suspect to most people who don't watch this space, this will have been news. So, I mean, it's not a huge amount. It's about a million dollars a day or so that it works out to. But nonetheless, you know, that's well over $350 million that we're putting into Putin's war chest and enabling his behavior and have for years, right? That's the irony. We've had people, we've had 3,000 Canadian Armed Forces members circling through Ukraine, training up the Ukrainian military since 2015. But at the same time, we've been happy to put $365 million a year into Putin's war chest. That's about a good $2 billion that he's currently using at shooting at the Ukrainians that we trained. This is why we can't, the left hand and the right hand in this country can't get it together. 
Uh, I was watching you doing an interview on CTV the other day, and honestly, I almost fell off my chair when they asked you what Canada can do to help this conflict. And you leaned forward and very firmly uh, said, we can build pipelines uh, and, and cut off Russian oligarchs who live along the bridal path. And I almost fell off my chair. Why does that not seem to be resonating with our leaders? Well, because I think first, most Canadians aren't aware. So they're unaware of the extent of dirty Russian money that's been around the Toronto and GTA real estate market for years. And we have no real capability to do anything about this. As I've said repeatedly, and as the Cullen Commission, um, uh, the Cullen Commission of Inquiry into Money Laundering in British Columbia is showing, Canada's laws are world-class uh, in terms of protecting criminals and the ultra-rich at the expense of our ordinary, us ordinary Canadians. But all also at the expense of our strategic interests uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to Ukraine. And I mean, look, our allies, Germany and uh, several other European allies, buy substantial amounts of natural gas from Russia. And of course, that's enabling Putin because that's money in his war chest. The other issue is, of course, the way Russia produces natural gas is very dirty. It is terrible, terrible for this planet. The way we produce natural gas in this country is very clean. But the problem is it's not by the coast. So we need to get it to the coast where we can actually export it. And Canadians in their smug fashion claim to be all moral and highfalutin and like to say, oh, God forbid, let's not build any pipelines. Now, politically, I mean, that's a decision that we can make, but we need to understand that then we have to also, those people need to take some responsibility for the thuggery in which Putin is engaging, because it means that we can provide natural gas to our allies. And that money would, of course, be coming back to Canada as opposed to putting that money into Putin's pocket. Why are, and we understand there were peace talks today between both sides, they've since uh, ended but are going to resume. Why are there peace talks going on? Why has this, and, and I don't mean to sound uh, morbid here, but why has this taken so long considering Russia has the capabilities that it has? Is this is this backfiring on Putin? Is he realizing this isn't as easy as he thought and the backlash is more severe? Well, so I wouldn't call these peace talks. I would call this a ceasefire at best. So an armistice where maybe everybody just stops shooting. The problem with an armistice is that the Russians are probably going to use it to resupply their troops on the front. Uh, right. So this is why nobody can quite trust Putin when he says, hey, let's sit down and talk um, when it's clear that he miscalculated on his supply lines. Look, the problem, I think, with what we're seeing is so far, the Ukrainian resistance has proven itself very resilient. But Putin had only thrown about half of what he has into the fight. Now he has about 70% of his capacity engaged and it's becoming more every day as he's moving into the front line. So that's why this week is particularly telling. And that's why it's particularly tragic that the government announces four days after, for instance, our colleagues in the Netherlands came out with a very similar announcement, oh, that we're going to be providing all this uh, lethal weaponry to Ukraine uh, when, you know, it's not clear we can even get it there because before the Ukrainians will be overrun by the Russians. So it's always sort of a little bit too little and a little bit too late. What are you expecting in the next short term here? Um. <sighs> The next few days will be telling in terms of whether the Ukrainian military collapses and whether the Ukrainian government can stay in 
power. I think what we will see is a very hardening of the sides, uh, an increased hardening of the sides between the Russian sphere of influence, the countries that Putin controls by force, um, and the countries that are sort of in the Western democratic European and, uh, and American orbit. And I think the best case outcome that we can have here is a ceasefire where we can sort of uh, convince everybody that uh, cooler heads might prevail. But I think what I'm worried about is given the Russian military's track record on human rights in Africa by the Wagner Group, in Syria, in Chechnya, where they leveled entire cities uh, that resisted them. Uh, I have a feeling that uh, if the Russians get frustrated and demoralized, um, we will see massive human rights violations on a scale we haven't seen since the end of World War II. Christian Leprec with us, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada in Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, talking about the uh, conflict, well, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, a political science, Carleton University, former professor there, and talk about what has been happening on, not only on the border, but now well in uh, Ukraine with the Russian invasion there. Elliot Tepper is with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you, Scott. Uh, there were talks that were going on today. They have ended, but there's promises of talks to continue. Is this just posturing, or is there any hope here? It's nice to have an avenue for an off-ramp if uh, an off-ramp somehow becomes available and visible. It's good that they're laying out. To, the only thing that came out of that talk was two things. One, we're going to keep talking, and two, there were some items on which there was an agreement. But uh, quite clearly, the action is not at the moment. Unfortunately, in talks, it's on the battlefield. Uh, we all know that Russia's got the capability to, cr- to crush Ukraine whenever it wants. Why has it not done that? Why has uh, why are we still in day five of this, and, and and why is this still a conflict? Is this because they didn't realize it would be as difficult as it is or has been, and they need more weaponry, or is it that Putin's getting blowback and it's not going as well as he thought it would? Right now, as we speak, apparently there's a convoy 17 miles long of mm. armored vehicles heading toward the capital city. Uh, that is, uh, as a commentator said, a city buster. So whether this is going to now enter a new phase immediately, uh, pretty imminently, and therefore we will have a different conversation, remains to be seen. There's also a report, Scott, from the London Times, that there's a, um, there's a group called called the Wagner Group, which is a Russian-backed kind of arm's length, so we can pretend we don't know them, group of mercenaries. The Times of London said there's 400 of them on the hunt to kill the leader, uh, Mr. Zelensky. So uh, the idea whether, the idea that they are uh, slowing down might just be that they are trying to achieve what they want now without creating an even more barbarous situation. The next step, we have to remember, this is, we know something about how Russia operates. Nobody's mentioned Syria and all this conversation, but, hmm. you know, they, we know what they've done in Syria. Look up, uh, I don't want to even use the terms there, but they've been committing war crimes there for a long time. They know how to pulverize cities and they know how to pulverize opposition. They apparently did not want to have to go that route. They thought they would do uh, a, a quick, clean attack, you know, I hate to use this word as well, but a blitzkrieg that would eliminate the government 
of Ukraine. They put their own people in. Those people would then order the army to step down, uh, and it would be quick and over. So, yes, indeed, there's been more fierce opposition than perhaps they anticipated. They did, as those talks where you opened up with, Scott, they, at that moment, they were starting to bombard yeah. uh, wider and wider civilian areas. Uh, so the the next step up in attacking and taking over a country is beginning to be underway after the failure of the initial push to succeed. Why are the, why is there chatter of nuclear weaponry? I mean, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Russia doesn't need that to to crush Ukraine. Why are they tossing those words around now? Yes, and I'm particularly disturbed by that. Apparently, more disturbed than, for example, the United States or other capitals, uh, nuclear armed capitals. Uh, the um, term that's being used now is that it's a performative act, not a military act. It, it's a way just to say. Boy, we really are serious. Keeping in mind, I think you and I discussed this, that before all the buildup was complete, and, and as there was a lot of talk, well, we'll never go in. We don't plan to invade Ukraine. Uh, Mr. Putin personally oversaw a land, sea, sea and air um, demonstration of the nuclear weapon delivery systems of the of the Russian state. That was before the buildup. Then he's basically said with that declaration and the warning in his rambling talk that, you know, if you try to stop us, you will meet, you will meet a, a response like you've never had, which was a nuclear threat. Because we're going to invade, we're going to take over, don't you even think of intervening. But now he's gone one step further with this raising of the threat level. The West has not responded, they've not shifted their defense postures, it hasn't been raised to DEFCON 3 uh, and all of that. But it is a very worrying development about, in a sense, what perhaps we've talked about. Is this man rational? Rational people don't toss loosely around the whole idea of nuclear holocaust. We've seen uh, the Ukrainian president on TV saying, you know, refusing to take uh, USA to get out of the country, doesn't want yeah. to ride out, wants help in, uh, and has pretty much become a, a, a hero here, and certainly amongst its own, his own people and those around the world. Um, could he lose his life in all of this? And if that happens, what are the ramifications? Well, we know what the ramifications, unfortunately, would be for him. There's no doubt whatsoever that he's apparently on a, a hit list, and he's number one on the hit list. He himself has said, we know there's a hit list. Uh, I'm number one. My family's number two on that list. Yes, his life is undoubtedly in danger. And removing, decapitating the political leadership, in this case, uh, fairly literally by killing him, would open up the possibility then of regime change. That's obviously one of the key goals uh, of Mr. Putin. We aren't quite sure what all of his goals are, but one of them is regime, regime change, get rid of this government, and uh, the one way to do it, and as I said, the Wagner Group apparently is on the ground with an assassination squad of 400 trying to do just that. So we could go from this global hero, hero and unfortunately, to a global martyr. So um, what if Russia goes in and, and takes the capital and, and, and uses that 17-kilometer uh, lineup of, of weaponry and, and, and equipment that it has? How is the world going to look at that once that's done? The question of the long-range implications of success or failure of this, 
uh, is really much on the table. The success from the Russian point of view, the, and I should say, as others are emphasizing now, this is Mr. Putin's war, not a Russian war. Uh, it doesn't seem he's he's very unpopular at home to start with. He thought maybe this would rally opinion, as it did when he took over Crimea. Apparently, it's having the opposite effect. Um, the bite of the sanctions hasn't really hit. But if he's successful, uh, then he will say, "Okay, I'll wait it out. I have no intention of attacking any NATO country at the moment because you know those Article Five uh, things really uh, put me off. I I, yeah. I will not." I will not risk being attacked, but I'll just wait my time, bide my time, pick apart the European you know, solidarity on this, uh, and then maybe move again at some future time. But if he fails, there's a definite possibility that all these pressures are now going to move uh, in the direction of perhaps it's time to get rid of the old guy. Elliot Tepper with us, political science expert, Carleton University, talking about uh, the politics and what is going on with Russia and Ukraine. Elliot, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. All right. Obviously, with what's going on in Ukraine and the invasion from Russia, uh, they said as many as uh, 500,000 people have already left Ukraine uh, and um, taken towards the borders just to get the heck out of Dodge uh, before uh, the Russian invasion is complete. Uh, Both Ontario and Canada have said they will uh, try to uh, fast-track those coming in from Ukraine who need the help. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Giddy Maman, a senior partner, founder of Maman Sandaluk Kingwell LLP. He is an immigration lawyer. Giddy, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Great to hear from you again. Uh, great to talk to you. And, and uh, obviously, this is a situation where uh, your expertise uh, is greatly needed. Uh, we're seeing, obviously, uh, 500,000. These are the reports we've had so far of those fleeing uh, Ukraine. Canada has suggested that they will uh, try to help and, and fast-track this. How difficult and what are the challenges of, of getting people here during a situation like this? Well, first of all, in a situation like that, we don't have a lot of operational support there. Uh, oftentimes, uh, embassies and consulates close to protect the consular staff. Uh, so that's that's number one. Uh, the government has announced the measures to try to help people get out by providing a special line for the Ukraine situation, uh, even uh, a keyword that you could put in in your electronic inquiries on applications that you can insert. It's the Ukraine 2022. And if they see that, they will um, jump on the request as soon as possible. They're, they're doing that. There are challenges, though, because normally we require uh, lots of things, uh, travel documents, background checks, medical checks. Uh, but the government is doing everything they can uh, to expedite those and uh, you know short-circuit some of the red tape. Um, are you concerned that people who may not be deservingly or would take advantage of this opportunity? You know, in every in, in every um, situation, you're going to have people who try to abuse uh, a program like this, and you know, but that's the cost of doing business. You you really can't yeah. uh, prevent that. We're going to try to help as many uh, people in need. Uh, there's lots of, uh, you know, mixed families where, you know, one is Ukrainian, one is Canadian. And uh, we're going to try to, you know, as a, as a nation, try to get them out of here and ask questions later. 
Um, and that's really, I think, in in these types of situations, it's the only reasonable approach you can do. If you if you wait, it's it's just going to be too late. We can cause tremendous hardship and tragedy if we if we wait. We remember trying to get Canadians out of Afghanistan and where that went. Are we prepared for this? Um, you know, it's a good question. I've always sort of thought that we should have an emergency plan, you know, just like a fire station. You know, when you have a certain type of a situation, you have a plan that you deploy. And it seems that we're always kind of inventing uh, inventing one at the last minute when there's a crisis. And we've been in many crises, whether it was Somalia, Afghanistan, Rwanda, Ukraine, Yugoslavia, all of these places uh, erupted and we didn't really have a plan. I think it's time we have some sort of a written down national emergency plan for immigration when situations like this uh, unfold. Um, But they are doing the best they can in reaction to the situation. Um, You know, they're going to do all kinds of things by, you know, prioritizing uh, renewals for, you know, work permits and study permits, etc. for Ukrainians who are here. Uh, you know, they have a special line for people who are um, whose spouses or children uh, are Ukrainian nationals. Uh, they're going to waive fees. They're going to do all kinds of things like that to try to make the process easier. But, you know, if you can't get the bodies out of Ukraine, you've got a problem. Yeah. Uh, for example, right now, uh, Ukrainian men between the ages of 18 and 60 uh, are apparently going nowhere. They're, yeah. they're, being, they're being held back to fight. Uh, this war. And so you're going to have, uh, you know, no doubt Canadian citizen women uh, who are going to be in relationships with these fellows and you you don't have a, a great solution. You may have children who will be separated uh, from their father. What, you know, what can Canada do about that really uh, on the ground? It's, it's going to be very difficult. Um, would would th- these people want to come here, or are they trying? What they'd really like is to go back home. You know, for sure. Um, people generally don't want to run away from their country where they have a job and a home and a life and friends yeah. and the food and the language. It's it's traumatic, but sometimes in life things are even more traumatic than that. Like you know, bombs falling in your neighborhood. Uh, so, you know, normally these are people who would not want to leave uh, Ukraine necessarily. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, life sometimes doesn't give you all the choices that you'd like to, to have. And so this is this is the situation. And really what's going to be uh, horrible is when we learn about families that were mixed, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, and they got split up and tragedy befell them. Like, you know, there, there are people who are now in, you know, fighting a very, very strong enemy and some of them will perish and there's nothing that we will be able to do for them. And so I just hope that we can, uh, use whatever resources that, uh, the Canadian government has, uh, to try to identify those cases and try to minimize, uh, you know, human suffering. Giddy Maman with us, senior partner at Maman Sandaluk Kingwell LLP. He is an immigration lawyer talking about Ukrainian refugees and those that want to come to Canada and the process of. Giddy, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As we're hearing about what is going on between Russia and Ukraine and the invasion of Ukraine, sanctions are being handed down uh, to Russia, uh, including to clamp down on oligarchs who are storing money in other parts of the world, including in Canada. And Ontario, uh, Christian Leprec said on the news the other day, you want to, what can Canada do? Number one, we can build pipelines. Number two, uh, we can stop allowing, uh, Russian people to launder their money on Toronto's bridal path. Sam Cooper, national investigative, uh, reporter for Global News and author of Willful Blindness, How a Criminal Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and Chinese Communist Party agents infiltrated the West. He's telling a story about a family linked to a series of companies, uh, that invested over $154 million in real estate across the greater Toronto area. Sam is with us to tell more of this story. Sam thanks for the time i hope you're well i'm well thanks for having me so is what we're seeing with russian oligarchs any different from what we're seeing here with china is and why are we not doing more to stop people from laundering dirty money here well first of all yes the the russian system and the chinese system of uh government is very similar in that they are authoritarian regimes and oligarchs at the very 1% or higher of society uh, make a great deal of money. Uh, much of it is corruption money. We know this from uh, uh, international reports, of course. And uh, we are warned in Canada for both financial integrity and national security reasons that we should be careful, very careful about vetting investment from very wealthy people from countries such as Iran, Russia, and China. And uh in this case, we, we turned up the, this, uh, this really billionaire uh, oligarch Zhao Jianhua had made uh, is in, in, in the neighbor of $6 billion is his estimated fortune, rose up in China's system uh, because he really, uh, as a student leader uh, during the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre, he, he supported the government, uh, as others have reported, and massive fortune uh, accrued to his family, including his wife, even touching on the family of Xi Jinping, the president. So this is highly politically sensitive stuff. And in a nutshell, a, a crazy story. He's kidnapped from Hong Kong 2017 years in 2017. No one knows where he is now, but we tracked his his family's money to Toronto. Uh, massive developments. Uh, we have estimated through various sources that the assets the company can, uh, the family companies control could be valued about 1.5 billion. So to your question, uh, are we doing enough? Look, uh, I, I think we've talked before about my research mm. in Vancouver. What I'm saying here today is the problems are very deep in Toronto about money from oligarchs. And in this case, an oligarch that uh, his family is here, we don't know where he is at this point. And you have mentioned when we've talked about stories uh, on the West Coast about this, that this is alive and well in the other parts of the country, not just Vancouver. So uh, any idea why would he have been kidnapped? Who would have kidnapped him? What are the what are the what's, what's the speculation there? Well, this is a great mystery, and we have a story coming out tomorrow that will probe deeper into it. What I can tell you is that I've been looking for the answers on that question for five years. Uh, 
you know, using Canada's legal document disclosure tools to try to get answers from Canada's uh, Foreign Affairs Department, Canada's ambassadors to China. Where is this man? Why was he kidnapped? We can't get any answers. It's a highly sensitive case. Our former, well, our Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, had said before records show we, they were, uh, the, the Liberal government was pursuing a trade deal with China. So uh, perhaps that's why we don't hear very much about the fate of this man. But, but what we do know is that there's very strong uh, analysis and speculation from experts that he could have been detained specifically because he was doing deals for Xi Jinping's family. And on the other side, deals for very uh, Xi Jinping's main rival, the former president, Jiang Zemin. So this is a factional battle at the very top of China's political and financial system, where you have uh, the most powerful people uh, on that side of the world. Uh, involved in a lot of deals and the speculation from experts is uh, not only was Zhao involved in corruption and money laundering at a, a massive scale, but uh, Xi Jinping didn't want him uh, to be around and in business anymore. Uh, if he's nowhere to be found, who's controlling these companies now or, or this real estate? This is the, the real focus of our investigation in Toronto and Southern Ontario. We have found that uh, from Markham, Ontario, there's uh, the image we have used as like a, a set of Russian nesting dolls where all kinds of corporations that were started by the family from 2008 up until 2015 and onward, where you have a number of front-facing companies uh, that are involved in these big land assembly plays, big development deals, condos around Southern Ontario. And yet, right at the center of that Russian doll, we have found is Zhao's uh, wife, who was his business partner in a company that was taken down in a major corruption uh, and a financial crime probe. Uh, his sister-in-law, her husband, really a network of family and business partners who also, by the way, have some very spectacular residential real estate in the Toronto area that we track down. More great work from Sam Cooper, national investigative reporter for Global News, author of Willful Blindness, How a Criminal Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. Sam, great reporting. Fascinating stuff, as always. We'll be following. Thanks so much. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.